I once had a teacher with the tendency of not finishing her sentences. She would start teaching us, start teaching the class, and all of a sudden her mind would go to another task that needed to be done. It involved going back to the storage closet to get a prop or something for an experiment that was coming up. She would make it to the back of the classroom, and then her words would get a little... Our scripture text is on page 1505 this morning, so if you want to flip over to 1505, and this would happen all the time, and it was mind-blowing for us. I'm sure in her mind, she had the transition going, and she knew what she was doing. She had to get the task done and get the class to follow along with her. But as students, we had no idea where she was going. She would just leave us hanging at that. Now I look to my, myself, and I know how much that bothered me as a student, and I find myself doing these same things when I'm trying to multitask. Has anyone else ever been there? You're trying to multitask, you're, whether it's having a conversation with someone in front of you and something else comes into your mind and you've got to get that other thing done, and, and all of a sudden you don't even know what you're talking about anymore. That happens. It happens to me all the time now, too. There are a lot of good things in this world that are clamoring for our attention. And oftentimes it causes the main thing to fade off into the background. And Jesus on the mount in Matthew 5 through 7, he's explaining how to live a life in his kingdom. His kingdom works differently than our everyday normal lives here in this world. And in chapter 6, Jesus teaches his followers how to pray and he gives to them the Lord's Prayer. And after the prayer, Jesus instructs his followers not to live for the praise and the notice of man, but to live lives worthy of the Father's approval. In our passage this morning, Christ calls each one of us into an undivided pursuit of the kingdom of God. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 6, verses 24 through 34, and in your pew Bibles, it is page 1505. Look at how seamless that transition was. But as you're able, I'll invite you to stand out of respect for God's word again if you're able to. Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 through 34. Reading in Jesus' name. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, and they do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things." But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. 
Father God, these are your words, and your word is true. We trust your word, Lord. We trust your word, and even though at times there are times when we act in opposition to your word, we pray, Lord, that this morning as we hear your word, that it would reach our minds, our hearts, and even to our own lives as well. Father, give us understanding of, of who you are, what you have done for us, and what you call us to as well. Be with us this morning as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It seems like verse 24 doesn't really belong with the rest of this text, does it? And I don't know if your Bible has different headings in the text too, but if, if it does, I'm guessing verse 24 is one section, and then verse 25 through 34 is another section here. And the title might be something along the lines of, don't worry, reminding us not to worry, or something else of that nature. Well, those breaks, those headings aren't part of the original text. They're put in there so that we could say, go to the section on do not worry. And you can open up your Bibles and boom, there it is. You know where we are to follow along with us. So they're there to, to help us. But in verses 25 and 34, these verses aren't written in a vacuum. They follow the verses that have been previously written. They're not to be isolated from the rest of the text. And the rest of the passage here, verses 25 through 34, is the same line of thought, only further defined as verse 24. Verse 24, Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. Even though it's pretty plain here in this text that you cannot serve two masters, we live our lives determined to prove Jesus wrong. For example, for those who are athletes and have a couple of different sports that you want to play during the same season, we are limited by time, aren't we? If there is a game for one sport that has a game at the same sport, or for a different sport, and they're in different locations, but at the same time, you have to choose one or the other. You can't be a dual sport athlete at the same time. Or when we try to multitask with our focus on other things, we end up doing poorly at both of them like paying attention to the conversation that you're currently in while also trying to eavesdrop to another conversation over here because it's just a little more interesting and you don't know anything of what's just happened. But these aren't ma the masters here in this text that Jesus is pitting up against each other. They're far more serious. Jesus pits God and wealth against each other, defining these as masters, or more accurately, God and mammon. Mammon is defined as money or property. It does include those things or any kind of valuable possession. And those possessions don't always have to be material things either. It could be a reputation or it could be popularity. And we hem and haw and go back and forth trying to put, put one foot in the camp of serving the Lord and the other foot in the camp of serving self. And no one of us here today, I would venture to guess, and I could almost, if I were a betting man, I would bet on it. Not one of us here this morning is that good at doing the splits. Just saying that might make your legs hurt a little bit. But as these two masters draw us in different directions, they pull us towards utterly different end goals. We cannot serve both God and mammon. Notice what Jesus, how Jesus describes these two influences here. He calls them masters. Whether we like it or not. And whether or not we agree or disagree, that's irrelevant. But Jesus calls these things masters. 
and we do serve a master. Which master is it that we serve? Are we serving God or are we answering to mammon? Is it the Lord, our Father who is in heaven, that maker of heaven and earth who gives us every good thing? Is he our master? Or is our master full of empty promises and vain pursuits? The next eight verses in the text here reveal to us the goodness of God. That God is the one who feeds the birds. He clothes the lilies of the field beautifully, far more beautifully than King Solomon in all of his glory could ever dress himself. And he cares for the things of this earth that are just here for a moment. Knowing that, knowing that this is the good and gracious provision of God, how will he not also care for all of our needs? We have a God who is good, and he is our master. That's one option that, that you can choose to serve this master. And remember what type of a master he is. He is a good master who has come to serve us, to save us. Comedian Bob Newhart, some of you will probably be familiar with that name. He did a little sketch portraying a psychologist. A troubled lady came into the psychologist's office and was seeking advice. She lays her biggest fear in front of the psychologist seeking help. And she says, I'm afraid of being buried alive in a box. I'm afraid of being buried alive, alive in a box. And every time that she thinks about it, it makes her miserable to the point where even if she's in any kind of confine, she starts thinking, I'm going to get buried alive in a box. And Bob listens to the lady's concern and he offers her two words to help her out. Just two simple words. Stop it. Stop it. And she continues to explain, well, you don't understand. It's not that easy. I've got all these other things too. And so he continues to tell her, stop it. As though that would just solve her problems. And the sketch goes on for about five minutes until at the very end, he says, okay, I'm going to give you something a little more. So I've got 10 words for you. 10 words to, to write this down. So write this down and, and this will solve your problem. Stop it or I'll bury you alive in a box. Now what's she going to do? This kid ends. So who knows whether or not this lady found the help that she needed and was able to go back to normal life. That's often how we tend to use these verses of Scripture here. As they say, don't worry. Are you worrying about something? Well, don't. Just stop worrying. Stop it already. Look at this verse and just stop it. And I'll ask you, does that work? It doesn't work, does it? We need a little more than just a, a slap on the wrist. And we expect people just to go and, and to worry no more. They've been cured because we've told them to stop it. And as much as I'd like to think that telling people to stop will solve their problem, it simply won't. It needs to be replaced with something greater, with the greater desire, something greater that they are going after, that they are seeking. And that's what Jesus is doing here in this text. He's a much more, more merciful counselor than Bob Newhart's character. Jesus slows down and he takes his time helping people process through the benefit of serving God versus serving some other master versus serving mammon. Now we look to mammon. We look to mammon to pay checks, to pay our bills, 
to purchase food and drink and clothing too. And we look to money to buy and maintain our homes. And yes, it's, it is good to work and it's good to save and it is good to be wise stewards and we ought to. But we must guard against mammon being our master. Though it might not seem so at the time, it always claims our full attention. Luther described it in this way, which I found to be a little convicting. Oh, not this point. Sorry, that's a little bit later. But Luther describes it in this way, talking about building up our mammon, our our power, our our authority, our, our wealth, whatever it might be. There the money lies in a heap. And it claims your full attention and service. And it defies you to buy yourself even a pint of wine out of it. After protecting this God for so long, the servants of this God have no more than any poor beggar. This is how those who serve mammon fare. You have it. There's your pile of wealth. It's over there. But if you take from it, it's suddenly not going to be there anymore. So whatever you do, you better not take from this pile of wealth. And so you try to pile more and more. Because though you have it, it's never enough. And since it's never enough, you can't use what you have. And suddenly mammon becomes your master. In contrast to mammon, we have God who takes care of the birds of the air, takes care of the flowers of the field, who takes care of the grass as well. And whereas mammon demands your full attention, you have to combat inflation. You have to guard it so it isn't stolen. You have to wear yourself thin because it can't protect and replenish itself. And yet, somehow we think that it can somehow protect us and save us. And God puts himself at the service of his own. And God graciously and mercifully serves man. And he provides for us out of his own goodness, out of his own abundance, giving us what we do not have, what we cannot earn. Mammon just demands more, more, and more. And God as our master has freely given us all things. The cure to anxiety, the cure to worry, the cure to a life of chasing after mammon is to see this contrast and to place it all in a right perspective. And that is, first and foremost, to gaze upon God who is good. And this is what Jesus is getting at in verse 32 of the text. Jesus uses another contrast here that's a pretty offensive one to the crowd that he's speaking to. You've got to read between the lines a little bit here, but he simply says, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the pagans. Don't be like the people who have no knowledge of God, no idea of who God is. Don't act like them. And he's talking to a crowd of Jews here. Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. Jews were far better in their own minds over than the Gentiles. And yet God is saying, Jesus is saying to them, don't act just like them. He likens them to the godless pagans, those who have no fear or trust in God, those who live their lives in the darkness of deceit. The audience may have snorted boldly in disgust, assuring Jesus that they are not Gentiles. They are, in fact, far better than the Gentiles. And yet, what master is it that they're serving? They live as though they have no Heavenly Father. They live as though they have no Heavenly Father who knows what they need and who desires to give them every good thing and meet their needs, who knows these things even before they ask for them. Because we have such a wonderful Father, 
and a wonderful provider in God, we don't need to worry. We don't need to waste our lives serving mammon in hopes that one day, that one day it will appreciate our efforts and finally give us every good thing. Mammon can't do that. So how are we to live our lives? If we aren't to live, give our lives to the vain pursuit of, of mammon, then what are we to pursue? In verse 33, Jesus tells us, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But how are we to seek God's kingdom? And where are we to find God's kingdom? If God's kingdom isn't part of this world, how do we find it here on this earth? God's kingdom is simply this, that God sent his son, Christ our Lord, into the world to redeem and deliver us from the power of the devil and to bring us to himself and rule us as a king of righteousness, life, and salvation against sin, death, and an evil conscience. And to this end, he also gave his Holy Spirit to teach us this through his holy word and to enlighten and strengthen us in faith by his power. That's what our confession of faith informs us of. This is the kingdom of God where Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning in his righteousness. To put it in other words, the kingdom of God is found where the gospel is proclaimed and received by faith. And in our fundamental principles, the first one, we confess according to the word of God, the congregation is the right form of God, of the kingdom of God on earth. So if we are to seek first his kingdom above all these things we are to seek first his kingdom in its right form here in this world we seek first the congregation not because you and i are so much better than everybody else no that's not it we seek the congregation because it's here where the word of god is proclaimed it's here where jesus is made known and elevated and glorified it's here where the word of god is taught to us so we can learn it and understand it and practice it in our lives and so we do come here and we seek first his kingdom knowing that everything else will fall into place this is to be our greatest pursuit this is to be our life's goal and here we are we're here this morning and we have god's word we have a congregation and it's here that we're tempted to be content because we already have it. What more do we possibly need? What more could we want? It's there when we need it. The congregation is not simply a place to receive the word, but it's a place to obey God's word. It isn't just the right form of the kingdom of God on earth. No, the congregation is also the visible body of Christ, incarnate in this world, sent to do the will of God sent to seek and to save those who are lost, to bring others into this kingdom, sent to bring the kingdom of God to others. Now, this is a quote that I found convicting. Luther commented on the people's indifference towards seeking the kingdom of God in his day. His words could just as well have been written about us today. He says this, Our one concern is to hear and learn God's word. Nothing more comes of it. We allow ourselves to be persuaded that it is enough for us. It's enough for us to know it. We never bother ourselves with actually doing it. What does, what does concern us is if we leave money behind in a room unguarded, somebody might steal that. 
but it does not concern the same people very much to be without the gospel for a whole year or so. We're not worried about that being taken away, are we? It's always here when we need it, we tell ourselves. And so it goes in one ear and out the other without ever affecting our hearts or resonating in our hearts. We don't meditate on it, nor do we put it into practice in our own lives. We're more concerned about the depreciating dollars in our wallets than about our eternal souls. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And there it is, plain as day for us. And just like Christ's word about our ability to serve two masters, we spend so much time spinning our wheels, proving, trying to prove Jesus wrong. Saying, no, Jesus, no one before me has ever been able to serve two masters, but I'm going to be the one. I'm going to be the one that can show you it will be done. Or Jesus, I know you tell us to seek you and, and your kingdom first and that you'll provide all of these other things. But I've got these other things that are also important. They kind of need my attention right now. You don't understand, Jesus. I have to eat. I have to live. I have to work. I can't just sit back on my rear end all day and spend all day reading the Bible. This could be our response. But is that what Christ is saying here? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his righteousness. Seek first his redemption. Seek Christ first. Seek the word of God first. Let God be your one who provided, let God be your master, our heavenly father who knows what we need even before we ask, who provides for us life and salvation, who provides for us every good thing, who provides for us as we pray earlier, or we'll pray in a little bit to provide for us our daily bread. And he does in every form that it takes. So seek him first. You can still live, work, and play, but we do it in proper relation to God. These things aren't the sum of our existence. So seek the Lord and do not worry about tomorrow. Our good and gracious God is already there. And his promises will be just as trustworthy tomorrow as they are today. So seek Christ and his word and ask the Father for the grace to believe his holy word to live a godly life here on earth and in heaven forever and to pursue his kingdom undividedly, undistracted by the many distractions that this world has to offer. Pursue his righteousness, which does not fade away, where thief cannot steal or, or break it, nor moth nor rust will destroy it. Seek first his kingdom and see the Lord provide all that you need for, you need for both this life and the next. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive us for the times when we fail to put your word into practice. Father, forgive us for the times when we failed to believe your word and when we tried to live lives in disagreement with it or in opposition to it, trying to prove your word not to be true. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for our divided pursuit of you and your kingdom. Enlighten us by your Holy Spirit that the gospel would become our greatest treasure. And grant us the power to live as your true children through Christ our Lord. Amen.